most elite members of special operations forces in the world, as trained and lethal as any Navy SEAL, Army Ranger, or Green Beret. Yet most people have never even heard of them. They are the U.S. Air Force Combat Controllers. You're listening to the podcast, Send Me. Here with you now is host Jason Sweet. What's the count, team leader? What's the count? Down! Keep going! Hold it. Try it! Keep going! Brought to you by SOCOM Athlete. Send me. Send me. You're listening to the Send Me Podcast by SOCOM Athlete, America's number one resource for special operations career preparation. This is your host, Jason, and today we have the honor of bringing on Eric Holman. Eric has an incredible story to tell of how he made his way into the special operations community as a combat controller, which started with immigrating from Mexico City, getting his United States citizenship by being adopted by his stepfather, serving in combat with valor overseas, and then coming back, finishing up his time as a combat controller, and now running for United States Congress. Eric, thank you so much for coming on the Send Me podcast. How are you, brother? I'm doing well, man. Thanks for having me, dude. Appreciate it. Yeah, man. It's a pleasure. I always love having combat controllers on the podcast. For our listeners out there, combat control is a, a small, very special, unique community of rowdy, reliable, <laughs> awesome dudes. You always want to have a combat controller with you in a bar fight as well as uh, on the battlefield. Eric, thanks again for coming on the podcast, man. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on in your day-to-day life, man? What's the life in Eric looking like right now? Dude, I actually thought when I left the teams, I would not be getting up at five in the morning anymore, but no, I was sadly mistaken, man. Uh, you getting up the I PT guess that, or what? L- dude, runner? part of it. Yeah, yeah. man, I get up at, you know, get up at 501, check the news, check emails, PT, and then I'm out doing whatever the campaign pulls me to do, man. Mainly door knocking. We are about 28 days from uh, election day. So, you know, got to grind it out, man, and, and get out there. So no stop until March 1 for me. Wow. So this is when you, when you say knocking on doors, you're talking about your campaign to get elected for Congress, essentially, right? I mean, how, how does yep. this work, man? I mean, are you personally going just by yourself? You got a team with you? You go door to how, how does that work, man? Yeah, no, I'm by myself. I have a guy that's uh, Cody, uh, who's doing all the back end stuff, the internet, you know, the, the websites and some, you know, making sure all the appointments are kept and stuff like that. But no, it's I'm a one man army, man. I, I get up in the morning, I you know, I go out and look at whatever neighborhood I'm supposed to be in. And yeah, I knock on doors and try to, a lot of people answer some, some people, you know, obviously they don't, but yeah, that's my day to day. I go out there and then sometimes during the day, there's events that I got to attend like luncheons or in the evenings, there's dinners and meeting with other people that could possibly help get my name out there. So it's just, yeah, every day I'm involved somehow, man, but yeah, that's the campaign trail for right now. So we're going to talk a little bit more about Eric's career as a combat controller, his life before going into the Air Force, what made him successful throughout his training to don the Scarlet Beret. Uh, but first, Eric, I want to hear a little bit more about uh, what are you what are you doing right now as far as uh, the House of Representatives goes? What does that take from, from a labor standpoint and from a day-to-day task standpoint? Um, and then also, tell us more about the, uh, the First There Foundation. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I was just sitting in my office in Austin, Texas, and I just can watch. Uh, I live in San Antonio, Texas, so I can stand the way Texas was going. You know, I mean, you're in Florida. So, it, you know, we like these red states. And uh, I decided to resign from my job and jump. You know, it's like a, a darked out halo. You just the ramp is open. It's dark and you just jump in, man. So, yeah, uh, a lot of studying, uh, a lot of stuff that, you know, I even started watching some School of Rock at the very beginning to figure out the whole bill process because you forget that stuff, you know, and and now just rereading the Constitution and Bill of Rights and just as much as, you know, the news is on 24-7. Um, so there's that part of it. And then, yeah, just constantly uh, trying to keep up with laws, especially down here in Texas, what's going to affect District 28. Uh, obviously, border security, back in law enforcement, and vaccine mandates are the three main points that I'm running on. And then after that, uh, I I kind of break away and, and turn off my phone about nine. But then 
uh, on Sundays when I have time. Uh, first Air Foundation, as you mentioned, it's uh, a nonprofit that I started after my buddy Chris Rush. He was my first supervisor as a combat controller. He left the teams, and you know, six months later, man, the demons of war got to him, and um, he he checked out. He committed suicide, and obviously, that broke my heart. Ryan Wolf, a good friend of ours that, that you were talking about, that's the last, that's the first time I've seen Ryan in, in ten years almost. So. That's kind of what uh, sparked my soul, if you will, to to do some for combat control. We're we're very small, as you mentioned, and you know not a lot of people know about uh, the Air Force as far as the PJs and combat controllers. You know, um, I think it's we've done ourselves a disservice by not putting our name out there. And now, twenty years later, that we've been in, you know fighting and, and doing stuff for the Army and the Navy, no one knows who we are. So I just kind of set myself out to um, to do that and to have some type of work, an extension of the team room, if you will, for, for my guys and take care of uh, combat controllers. And, and there's a special forces foundation. There's the, the pararescue foundation. There, there are foundations for a lot of these special operations career fields, but combat control never had one. So, so this is definitely something that, that's new and necessary. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the, the mission of the first air foundation? Yeah, so there's a the, we did have an association and we, they just started a, a foundation, but um, you know it's it's uh, they have kind of their own lane. I just saw a, a piece that was missing, so I kind of splintered off on my own and, and got it going. And you know I have a little bit better pulse on what's going on with the guys. So uh, what we're doing is uh, as we raise money, is I want to be able to promote combat control run businesses guys that are making it out there, you know, and they have transition or they're still in like Chris Ball. She's hopefully making the bobsled team for the Olympic team. You got um, guys that are MMA fighters, uh, Connor Matthews. We have guys that are business. Shout out to shout out to Chris and Connor, two uh, guests on our podcast as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I, our website, it's the first air foundation. It's spelled with a one. It's, it's one S T T H E R E.org. I want, I want to promote those guys, you know, so that way their community starts, we need to come closer and we're so small and we should be able to have a good line of communication where we're looking after, after each other and our families and we don't. Uh, so I want to bring that together, obviously look after our families. I know that when we were at war for so long, our families, our loved ones, we put them through hell, right? Whether it's your, your mom, your girlfriend, wife, whatever, family members, um, we're always gone. And we never really think about them till it's till it's too late. So before I know the tragedy happens, I want to make sure that that community starts to build and come closer together. Uh, I also want to be able to, if guys need help with either resume writing or just trying to find a job or or just after they leave that the the teams, I want them to have something, a resource where they can go to us and say, okay, this is run by another combat controller, and and I can trust that they're going to know what I'm what I'm doing or what I'm going through. So, you know, when I left, I felt lost and forgotten, man. And, and it sucked. And by the grace of God, I had good teammates and different organizations that reached out to me, but there was really nothing that out there for combat controllers. So I'm doing that to change, um, change that. Uh, I don't want our dudes to go with what Chris felt like, you know, being alone and especially, you know, he was in Florida when he did it. So to be surrounded by so many of us in that community and to feel alone, it's that to be terrible, you know? So, um, I, I, I want to make sure that we're, our guys are taken care of. So yeah, that's kind of, uh, the, the major thing for, for first there. First there foundation, uh, brand new, check them out on Instagram one. So that's not a, a first with F I R S T. That's a one S T first there mm-hmm. foundation, check them out on Instagram and uh, support that organization. Eric, so tell us a little bit more about uh, running for the house, man. I mean, wh- what does it take? Because <laughs> I, I just think about like, okay, running for office. Like, like yeah. what does it take? <laughs> you know, it's not a, a job application, right? How does yeah. this all start? Oh, man. It, to be honest with you, the, the biggest thing that it takes to run for office is money. And it sucks. And I absolutely 100% hate it. You know, when uh, I hunted for a couple of different consulting groups, finally found one. And they said, all right, man, what you need to do is raise money right off the bat. And uh, I said, okay. So you write down a list of friends and family that you're going to hit up right off the bat when you announce. And it's at first you're like, okay, yeah, this guy's good at maybe 500 bucks. This person will give me 20. These people are pretty wealthy. They'll give me the max. But man, I'm telling you, once once you start making those calls, sometimes people are like, yep, I'll do it. And then it just never comes. And it's the 
probably the worst thing I hate about running for office is asking friends and family because I care about them to say, hey, can you give me some money so I can go do this thing? And uh, and then sometimes it doesn't happen right away. So then you have to remind them, you know, they're busy with their own lives. They could probably give a shit less what you're doing with your politics at first. But, you know, it's uh, it's it's tough, man. Running for, running for office takes a lot of money. Uh, and then obviously you got to be able to speak in public is you go to these uh meet and greets and then sometimes you have your i have six opponents on the on the republican primary and you know they all kind of tell you how great they are and for us being quiet professionals it's a little bit difficult to to uh kind of speak about yourself you know and, and kind of you know say all the achievements you've done and why you're gonna do so so many great things but as i've gotten some reps i'm, I'm getting the hang of it uh definitely staying humble but it's a little bit uh it's a little bit difficult uh but yeah, man. And then asking strangers for cash, you know, it, it's, it's, it's been good. It's uh, a lot of great love and support from our communities and people on social media. And, but yeah, man, I'm hanging in there. So uh, definitely <laughs> if you're ever going to think about running for office, either be independently wealthy or, or just be ready to tell your friends, Hey, I'm going to hit you up for cash. So, so you, you round up a bunch of cash. Okay. You, you do your best to not look pompous and, and arrogant while telling everyone uh, about why they should vote for you and why you're, you're going to be a great leader and, and, and maintaining that humble stature, which is very hard for our listeners out there to, yeah. to promote yourself while being humble. There's an art to it. Um, yeah. so, so you're working on that. Um, so, so you get the money, you, let's say, you know, you, you raise a hundred thousand dollars, um, as a congressional candidate, what, what happens there? Where, where does the money yeah. go? So a lot of people, I, I think there's some misconception. I think people think that if you raise money, it's for, for me, right. To, to go buy myself a new car or something. Oh, vacation not, money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some walk around money. No, man. It's, uh, you know, first you got to pay your consultant. So they have a fee, right. For them to set up your website and book your events, blah. So that's, that's a good chunk of change right off the bat. Then you have to, you know, yard signs, which I hate, but people, some people love them. And they, when you go with door knocking, they, they're like, Hey, do you have a sign? Can you put it in my yard? And you're like, sure. So that takes some money. Then your digital plan. If you've gone to uh, my website, uh, my campaign website, you'll see that uh, the, the group that I, that I hired through a friend of mine, Chad Hall was, you know, the guy from snake farm. He hooked me up with this guy that made an epic campaign video and uh, that took some money, you know, and it's just, it's chunks of money, you know, to just get your name out there, the, the, the flyers, the signs, the commercials, buying airtime, even, uh, you know, hiring someone to book you on, on, uh, you know, interviews. Uh, on Friday, I have an interview with Newsmax at 10 o'clock central. So that's, you know, that takes money. It's, it's just big chunks of money constantly, man. So that's why you got to raise money. And if you don't, then your campaign runs out of money and then you just can't compete. Like I mentioned earlier, there's six other people and, you know, a lot of them have a lot more resources than I do, you know, so I'm just grinding it out, man. And, and the other ones, the good part is that those people are just sending out mail and flooding your, your, the mailboxes with, you know, their pamphlets or whatever, and they never get out there. But for me, nah, man, we're, we're grinders. We're, we're out there just, you know, knocking on doors, dealing with the elements, you know, nothing we haven't dealt with before. So that's where all the money goes, man. It sucks. Right. No, nothing you haven't dealt with before. Just a different environment and a different client and, and different people that you're dealing with, you know, which makes it challenging. But you have been equipped with, in my opinion, all of the, the necessary character traits and training to be able to go be successful at this. And yeah. myself and, and all of our listeners, you know, I can speak for them. We wish you the best representing Thanks. the special operations community and going on and, and serving in that political battleground. Speaking of combat control, Eric, I would assume you wouldn't be where you're at today unless it was for combat control. I wouldn't be where yeah. I'm at today if it wasn't for pararescue. I'm very grateful for my experience, very grateful for that career and, and the men that served with me before me and are serving now. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and and what maybe led you to to go into the Air Force? Yeah, uh, yeah, combat control definitely the best time of my life, um, <laughs> and I think it prepared me for this stuff. You know, we we're just you know that never quit, never die attitude. But um, when I started off as a kid, man, I I I, I was born in Mexico City. Um, you know, my parents both Mexican. My my dad, um, he was a talented jeweler. Moved to the U.S. to pursue the American dream. Brought us over the right way. Uh, unfortunately, my dad became alcoholic, wasn't a good, uh, good guy to my mom. And, uh, you know, luckily they got divorced 
and I met my stepdad. So my last name, Homan, you know, it's a German last name, but obviously I don't look German, right? So uh, he adopted me and that's the, the name change. But um, yeah, I grew up in San Antonio, played sports, you know, and, and was, was having a good time. But, and I went to college, I went to Texas Tech and I was just having too much of a good time. So my parents just couldn't afford it. You know, we weren't wealthy. So uh, the Air Force was, hey, join the Air Force, do four years, we'll pay for your college degree. So I said, okay. You know, I was thinking the Air Force is probably the, the kinder one, you know, let me let me go do that. So I, I did. I came in as a as a cop at security forces. And uh yeah, I I I liked it, you know, I liked being law enforcement and and uh I was gonna get out and become a cop actually. And then right before actually I had just re-enlisted because I wasn't done with my degree. Uh 9-11 happened, so I'm a little bit old older and um I, I just, man, I just want revenge, man. I, I've mentioned this a lot in interviews and stuff. I something just sparked my soul on fire, and I was like, nope, I want revenge for what they did to our to our country and to to our people. So I was going to get out, and I was going to go to the army or the navy. And luckily, I ran into my buddy Will, who's a combat control instructor, and he's like, "What are you, an idiot? Like, why would you leave this quality of life? Like, we have PJs and we have combat controllers." And I was like, man, I never heard, I, I didn't want to be in the medical field that, you know, I, I was like, nah, I can't be a PJ. That's, that doesn't do it for me. So he's like, okay, be a combat controller, you know, you drop bombs, you know, you, you scuba, you jump, you halo, you demo qualified, you shoot every weapon in the DOD. It's just awesome. So I said, okay. I was like, yeah, I'll look into that. And the more I looked into it, I was like, all right, yeah, let me stay here. And uh, yeah, I, you know, two-year pipeline. And, and that's, that's the reason, that's the reason why my, my life changed was because 9-11. And I think a lot of people that we served with, you know, after 9-11, whether you were a little bit younger or a little bit older, it, it just, it just brought the country together. And it's like, no one messes with America. You know, I don't, I don't give a shit where you're, where you're at. Like we're American and, and we lead the way. So 9-11, you know, as bad as a tragic and horrible day that was, it just brought our country together and we weren't divided. It is now over all kinds of dumb dumb stuff you know that's going around but um yeah. it's a shame that it takes something a huge of, tragedy of, of that scale to bring us together true unity of us fighting as a country for for a common cause eric i gotta rewind for a second man you know sure. we we look for stories like this to come onto this podcast because there's some type of uniqueness in, or pivotal point or something that happens in someone's life or how they were raised or the circumstances that were given to them that somehow leads them into special operations. We're talking the vast majority of guys that go into these career fields. Mm -hmm. So if I heard correctly, Eric, you were born in Mexico City yeah. and, and then found your way into the States as a young man, young boy, and you were adopted. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So my parents, like I said, my, my biological dad brought my mom and my sister along with me over to the States and we're pursuing wow. the American dream, you know, and, and, uh, yeah. but like I said, he was just a bad guy. And then luckily they got divorced and then my stepdad, he adopted me, then went through the entire process and, and became a U.S. citizen. So, wow. Yeah, man, I'm living the American dream, dude. Uh, I, I think if, if it wasn't for, you know, all those chain of events that happened, right. If my dad wasn't, you know, a go-getter, my, my biological dad was a jeweler. So he wanted to, you know, pursue the American dream himself. It just, unfortunately, you know, alcohol and I think that's being by himself without a family kind of screwed him up. But yeah, man, if it wasn't for that and then me and my stepdad and all those things coming together, I mean, I probably would still be living down there. So it's just, you know, it's wild how, how this life and, and the plan that God has for you, it's just, you gotta, you gotta stick it out and everything happens for a reason, you know? Well, you speak about God's plan. You clearly, he had a purpose for you, Eric. And it sounds that you not only are grateful for this country, but that you love this country. And it seems that those that truly love this country in order to, to find true love for your country, you have to, to know why. You have yeah. to you have to see what else is out there. You have to experience something or or having that taken away from you. It's like, yeah. man, I I don't usually just walk throughout the day and say, man, my arm feels good today. You know, my <laughs> back feels good today, right? Only yeah. time you would say that is if your arm hurt the the week before or your back was hurting the day before. Right. Well, that you, happens to all of us. <laughs> right. We we tend we tend to, to right after all those jumps. After dude, all those, yeah. But yeah. we tend to we tend to do a good job of complaining about things. And be because when we have good things, 
that's what we know. And, and we almost get entitled to them. So here's Eric coming from Mexico City. Okay, this is one of the largest cities in the world, one of the most poverty cities yeah. in the world. Okay, coming all the way to the United States. All right, dealing with a divorce, being adopted. All right, and then going into the, well, going to Texas Tech first and then yeah. getting called to, to go and serve. And, you know, the revenge business, very powerful, no doubt. We see that happen with our enemies, with us. Um, yep. But I would like to think, Eric, you probably join the country too because you love it and, and you want to go yep. do something, make a difference because of that, that vengeance that you felt, someone, someone hurting your country, someone attacking you. Yeah, I, I think you nailed it. You know, we, it breaks my heart when I see people that are born here and then have it, you know, have had it good for the last 20 something years where dudes were, were over there fighting and keeping the enemy at bay, you know, and, um, and then when you have nothing, all, all they're doing now is complaining about what they don't have and they, they're entitled to something. And if something goes, doesn't go the right way, then it's racist and America sucks. And, and I just sit back and, I mean, that's another reason why I ran for office because I'm like, you, you don't realize how America has its problems. Sure. Every country has their problems, but as far as the rest of the world, man, I mean, you know, when I lived in Europe, even England, Germany, France, you, uh, Sweden, I mean, I, I was all over Europe and I'm telling you they're, they're great countries, but compared to the United States, man, hands down, the U S is quality of life, the, the ease of everything, the convenience of everything. And in a way, that's what spoiled our people where they don't true, truly realize how, how great we have and how we should protect it and defend it. And some of us that joined the military and have gone to war, they, we see that, you know, and, and, and it's, uh, like I said, it's just heartbreaking to see how, how it's the cool thing to be unpatriotic or to say, oh, America sucks and we need to go to socialism. You know, it's, those people, I wish they would go live in those places so that way they can truly experience and, and cherish what we have here in the U.S. Well said, Eric. And when you decided that college wasn't for you, but you wanted to go into the military, uh, you ended up going in in security forces, right? So you yeah. thought about um, maybe getting out and being a cop on the civilian side, but but you met, what was your friend's name again? Will, Will Perez. He was our instructor down there. Yeah. Will Perez. So there's always that one guy in these yeah. interviews. There's always that one guy, that influencer, yeah. which is very important. And you listeners, you're lucky, you're blessed because you have so many people that are coming on here and, and, and pouring out their story to you and trying to, to help equip you in your journey. Lots of influencers. So Will was your influencer, told you, hey, man, why, why bounce over to the army when you can stay right here in house and be a controller? So you decided you wanted to go do it. I mean, what was next, man? Did you start yeah, swimming, so, swimming laps or what? <laughs> so I got to add a little story to a little part, a little yeah. tidbit to that story. So yeah. when I, I met Will and he told me that, and then at the same time, my buddy Ben Hubbard, he was another instructor, comes up and, you know, he Ben looks like a the typical what you think of an operator, right? Barrel chested, big old jawline. You know, he had kind of curly hair, kind of, you know, he got some gel in there, I'm sure some product. And he looks at me, he's like, oh, what do you think? Will another recruit? And and Will says, yeah, man, I think so. And uh, Ben's like, oh, dude, you're going to love it. You know, you, you drop bombs, you stay at the best hotels, you, you're fully qualified. You got the tower of power, right? You got your, your jump wings, your halo wings, your dive bubble. Uh, and uh, he's like, I'm telling you, man, this is the greatest career field ever. And so I'm kind of like, yeah, this is great. I want to do what these guys said. And this is probably going to sound crazy but or turn off some of your viewers. But uh, he, he, look, he reaches down in his cargo pocket, takes out his scarlet beret. And he's like, you see this thing? And he kind of like almost hits me in the head with it. And I'm like, yeah. He's like, you get all kinds of girls with this thing. And I was like, I'm in. I'm doing that for sure. So that was my recruiting story, man. Hey, it's it's true. No no yeah. need to, to edit that out. It's true. Yeah. You, you get the beret, you get the girl. Yeah, yeah. So I, that was it, man. That sold it for me, man. It was, uh, but yeah, I uh, that's what that's what did it. That, that put the the bow on the on the entire two years of getting your butt kicked, you know, to become a controller. So yeah, yeah, man. Okay, so. You find yourself uh, swimming laps, doing pull-ups and, and rocking. Yeah. How, how did you prepare from a guy who didn't really know about soft to Dude. 
Yeah. Well, yeah. Tell us about that. Sorry about that. Yeah. I forgot. I was telling that other story, but <laughs> it's no, <all> man, good, <laughs> a lot of running, man. I ran everywhere. And once you join the pipeline, you remember, I mean, you run everywhere. As soon as you get up, you leave your dorm room or your wherever you're at, you're running everywhere. So ton of running. Uh, I did swim, swim quite a bit, a lot of calisthenics, push-ups, sit-ups, pull-ups. Um, and it was every day. So I was still as I was still working as a cop in the air force. So I was working 12 hour shifts, which turned into 14, but I would sleep for about five hours, get up, go back to base and PT, man, you, I mean, I wouldn't say you have to be strong, obviously, right. Cause you start carrying heavy rucks and you know, all the stuff they load you down with, but to prepare for that pipeline, I started probably a good four or five months before my entry date into the combat control pipeline. But I I'm telling you running, continuously challenging myself, you know, the minimums back then, I think it was three miles on there, 24 minutes. So you obviously want to exceed the standard. So I, I think I was always constantly trying to get in between 18, 19 minutes. And, and I was, I mean, I was at Crossroom when I was 26 and at 26 years old, you're like, man, I'm old compared to these 18, 20 year olds coming in. But man, that's the time, you know, you're, you're prime, you know, you're, you're in great shape and you've got some of your old man muscles, but a lot of running, a lot of swimming, uh, I, I would just tell your the people that are looking to go into these career fields to research the minimums and, and then exceed those minimums by every day, just putting out, eat healthy, cut out alcohol, all the stuff that poisons your body. If you really want to do this, you have to tune your, tune your body into, into this machine that that's, that's going to get you through it. Cause if not, and obviously you gotta be mentally tough, but that'll come, you know? So it sounds like you had a, a, a routine for our listeners out there, killer routine. And, and that's really what it takes. A routine involves everything from nutrition to recovery, to sleep, mobility work, strength training, calisthenics, body weight work, running, rucking, swimming, water confidence, maybe even finning, depending on how uh, prepared you want to be, whether or not you're going in as an officer, cross trainee, things like that. So um, here's a guy with a 12 hour shift, sometimes 14 hours, and he's fine enough time to train. So that takes a lot of self-discipline because you can, you can develop your game plan, but then execution of that game plan or that routine is really what it comes down to. Absolutely, man. A routine is, is key. I mean, like I said earlier in your show, that's my routine now. Get up early in the morning, check email work out and then hit the campaign. So yeah, routine is, is your number one thing. Absolutely. How early are you waking up in the morning? You said 5 a.m.? 5.01, yeah. 5.01 a.m., man. Gotta get that extra minute. Morning. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's my, my birthday was May 1st, so I'm kind of like said 501 and kind of reminds me, glad I'm alive. So 501 yeah. is my day. D- that's really cool. So so Eric wakes up at 501 a.m. That's his birthday, and it's a reminder for him to be thankful that he's alive. All right. That, I love that. For our listeners out there, those are the kind of things that you want to pick up from these podcasts is, is, is these little nuggets that can help you be a better person and be more disciplined, help you uh, change your mindset so that you can yeah. go and attack the day. So you ended up going through the pipeline. Um, how was selection for you? It was, uh, it was, it was, you know, I didn't really know. I think anyone that joins does on these two career fields doesn't really know how it's going to go. Right. You hear the rumors, but, um, you know, I started off with 20 guys and then, uh, I cross trained. So I was a staff sergeant. So I was the old man of the group. You know, I think the oldest other guy older to me was, uh, or young, uh, I guess my junior was 22 years old. The rest were twenties. And I think 18 was the, the youngest guy, but so you had to be a team leader, know, bunch of yeah, responsibility so right off the bat, man. So how was this like, okay. And, and then you're in charge of 20 guys. And it was, uh, you know, after the first, uh, the first school, we were down to, I think, like 10 or nine guys right off the bat, you know, injuries, guys quit. And uh, yeah, it was at, at the end of the whole thing, only four of us became combat controllers out of that 20 man group. And I'm telling you, it's just, you, you have to be mentally tough and, and obviously your body's going to break, you know, if, like you said, if you don't take care of it and you don't listen to it and you're not prepared, then you're just wasting everybody's time by trying to, join one of these career fields, then you just won't make it. I believe back in the day for our listeners out there, you're familiar with the Air Force Assessment and Selection course. That is the course you go to after the Special Warfare Prep course, which is the course you go to after boot camp. So in the past, it used to be boot camp, and then you go on off to NDOC. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, we, 
for combat control, it had to split by the time I did it. So, you know, PJs went through a route and we went hours. Uh, but yeah, you, you get out of boot camp or for me, I cruise trained, cross trained, and then uh, you report to Lackland, to Medina, you know, the Medina annex, what's the Chapman annex now. And yeah, man, the next, the next day you show up and instructors are there and they're kind of teaching you and what you need to do. But it's just basically was a smoke fest, man. I mean, it's, they just want to see where you're at mentally. And if you're strong enough to, to go through two years of, of this hard training, but uh, you know, I would say there, like I told you, I was one of the older guys, but the water is the equalizer. If you're not confident in the water, if you, if you can't swim, if you just are afraid of it, then I, I would say work on that first because the water will put everybody on the equal, equal plane. And, and then you'll realize who's going to make it or not, man, the water's tough. Oh, it, the water is tough. We're land, we're, we're mammals, land-based. Yeah. Well, there are mammals in the water, whales and dolphins <laughs> and such, but I'm definitely not a whale or a dolphin. I'll tell yeah. you that much. So got to ask your opinion on something, Eric. Sure. When it comes down to, to missions mm-hmm. for PJs and combat controllers, we're talking very rarely, even SEALs, very rarely are you going to get a dive mission, combat yeah. dive mission, yet we train to it. To a, to a large extent, and it's such a big part of our pipeline. Why do you feel water is so important during the selection process? Yeah, I mean, I think water, I mean, the planet's surrounded by water, right? So you never know where our enemy's going to spring up and you're going to be able to infill or exfil out of that terrain. But uh, I think the water just gives you that ultimate confidence at the end of the day when things are bad you know when you were in pre-scuba scuba school when when they're just tying your regulator up in knots and you're freaking out because we we want air right i mean that's what makes us go so i think it gives you that confidence that if you just take that little time to assess what's going on that pregnant pause as they call it and you you really assess where you're at and what your danger is and how you can you can pretty much overcome anything you know and and I, I kind of do the same thing now when, when things get stressful and you kind of just remember, fall back on that training of, let me take a step back. Let me really look at this objectively. Let me think outside the box. And then you come up with a solution. And I think the water teaches you that it's not your element and it's unforgiving. So you got to be able to be cool under pressure. And, and for both of our career fields, that's what it is. You know, when bullets start flying or, or the mission goes bad or, something breaks, a guy gets hit, you, you have to be able to stay cool under pressure. And I think the water is key to put everybody on that same level and realize that you can overcome your situations. Well said. The, the water is not bullets by any means, but mm-hmm. as Eric said, it's preparing you for that type of pressure. Why does the water add that level of pressure? Well, it's because when you can't breathe, you will essentially pass out. And if you are passed out for long enough, you will die. Your body knows that. So when you're in the water, you have less control and you are closer to death. And so dealing with that, that chaos and being calm under pressure, which is poise, is a good measure. Not exactly how you're going to act, but it's a good measure of how you're going to act under stress. So you got through the, the CCT end doc. And then after that, what, what was it from there? You go off to, to ATC and, and do air traffic control. Yeah. So our pipeline at the time, I don't, I know it's changed quite a bit. So you always you did selection course, yeah, selection course. And then we went to air traffic control school, which that was a beast, man. I mean, it's like, I believe it was four months of, you know, you get up early PT for about two hours then you're in air traffic control school for until like about six, and then you do it every day. And, I mean, learning air traffic is, is very tough, but, um, I, and that's the other thing that weeds guys out, right? You got to be somewhat smart to get through this career field. So you get through that, uh, and then you go to survival school. Then you go to finally at combat control school where they kind of put your first year all together. And, and, you know, I don't know what they call it now, but I mean, for us, it was called hell week. The first, once you get kind of settled in, then you go through that and then see who's left. And then they start kind of teaching you, but it's still very, very harsh. <laughs> Your first year as a controller or as a wannabe controller at the, at the beginning was, uh, was very crushing, man. And it's uh, guys that get the Scarlet Beret after the first year, man, I was such an accomplishment. I was, I was so glad to be over that first year. I was rough. And CCS is out there at Pope Airfield, yep. Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I had the honor of going out there and watching one of our former students don his Scarlet Beret 
and it sure was a blast going out there. And then uh, there was a bar called Pirates. Did you guys do Pirates? Yeah. <laughs> oh man, yeah, we got to know. I graduated and I got I became operational, and uh, I think the first school they sent me from the three twenty first. You know, three twenty first is in England. It's in Melbourne Hall, England, and. Uh, the first school that I went to, they, they're like, you're going to survey school back to back to the States. So I was like, oh, man, great. So uh, I went back and pirates. We were there and the first couple of controllers were there, maybe five of us. And we get in this giant brawl. It was just it was terrible, man. But I'll never forget pirates. We uh, we came out. OK, you know, none of us got in trouble. We got threatened. We're getting kicked out of survey school because obviously they knew that it was us. But. No one pressed charges and every, I mean, that's, uh, that's the other thing. Once you, once you make these career fields, man, you're always there for your buddies, good or bad. And it, it screws us sometimes, but, uh, that, that fraternity that you have, it's like no other, not, I mean, you could have played sports in high school and, and one state championships, even college, but it's nothing like the fraternity of being on teams with, with the guys. So, but yeah, good old pirates, Jack Fanning, one of my favorite instructors of all time, he was there and he was there for QRF us and get us out of the, get us out of the, uh, the, that fight. So it was good, man. I, I haven't heard that name pirates in a long time. Good old great. pirates. Yeah. So yeah. he got you guys with the little QRF X fill, the hot X fill yeah. as we call that. So you got your, your Scarlet Beret and headed on out to the 321st special tactics squadron, Mildenhall, England. How was that for you? Oh, it was great. Uh, you know, being in a different country, uh, I loved, I think, in my opinion, man, when, when guys come out, I think their first duty station should be overseas because it, you're so close together, you know, in the States, uh, the, the units are a little bit bigger and, you know, at the end of the day, come five o'clock, whenever you're done, everybody just spreads to the wind, you know, they, they have their apartments everywhere all over town and, and just kind of everywhere till, till Monday, right. Till you come back to the, to the unit. So overseas, uh, I mean, that's, that's all you have. So my team in England was, I think, 12 guys, 12 combat controllers. We had a PJ team. So we were a blue team. PJs uh, were, were on red. And I think their team was a little bit bigger than ours. But me being a controller and being in England, I mean, that's all you had. I mean, that was your family. And there was a couple of guys who were married, but most of us were single. So, I mean, we worked together, worked out together, at, you know, Friday through Sunday, we all hung out. And uh, man, it, being overseas, was you're exposed to different culture, uh, in England, since it's an island, um, we're always training. The weather is so bad there that, you know, for us to do practice close air support, we would always go to another country. We would go back into Europe. So, you know, we train, especially in Germany, we're in Germany quite a bit. And this, you know, I mean, Germany's got some great, um, training facilities. So we worked with all kinds of different, um, countries, uh, calling it, you know, cast close air support, uh, training with them with their other soft units on how they do things and, and they they're getting to know what a combat controller is so man overseas was man that was great man and you see the culture and you see history right i mean america is very very young compared to, to the other side of the world so man i i think guys should definitely try to get overseas their first go get that team unity uh really learn their jobs and then come back stateside and and continue to continue to work so yeah, man, nothing but great things um, from from my time in England. And while you were in England is when uh, you ran into, eventually, this is later down the line, but you ran into our mutual friend, Ryan Wolf, right? Yeah, oh. man, I was, uh, I was coming to my, to my time, uh, to uh, my, my time was coming to an end there in England. And uh, I think I had maybe a couple, a month left or something. And uh, Ryan comes to a team, you know, as a brand new controller and he got assigned to blue team, him and Trey Bruner, I think was, or maybe Trey got there right before, but anyways, good group of guys. And uh, we, it was my going away towards, you know, like I said, a couple of weeks later and we went to this place called the church and, and Ryan came with us and man, the stories, <laughs> the stories of that place was we're great, but yeah, I mean, I love Ryan. He's a super good dude. And like I mentioned, I left, I left England in, uh, 20, 2011. And, uh, the next time I saw him was at Chris Rush's uh, memorial in, in Colorado. So man, it's, I would tell your listeners once you make it, man. Uh, and Will Perez told me this, once you make it as a team, take pictures. I know people are like, ah, oh, you want to take pictures. This is dumb. Or, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't have time for that. And it's, it's 
you know, it's just not the cool guy thing to do, but I'm telling you, take pictures because one day a guy's going to get hurt. A guy's going to get killed. And, and you're going to wish you had those pictures, man, because you're going to look back on it when you were both young and you're like, man, I forgot about that guy. We had the time of our lives during this time. And as you get older and have kids and marriage and, or whatever your life takes you, man, those times you'll never forget them. And it's always good to, to have pictures. So take as much pictures as you can. Well said, and, and especially your time in the pipeline and, and as a young guy, because the relationships that you make in the pipeline when you're enduring that same schedule and that grind every day and dealing with the same problems and overcoming those problems together, being, being victorious together, that builds true bonds. And I tell you what, oh, I, absolutely. I have some great friends that were on my PJ team that I still keep in touch with, but my true brothers that I talk to when I need something, they call me when they need something, checking in on Christmas, checking in on Thanksgiving, birthday, whatever it is. Those kind of guys are the guys I went through the pipeline with. And our mutual friend, Eric, as you know already, uh, Ryan Wolf uh, was a groomsman at my wedding and we went through Halo school together. So only a four-week period of our lives, <laughs> we, we intersected at Navy Freefall School Learn how to jump out of airplanes together professionally, had a blast on the weekends, had a great time. And, uh, and here we are, shoot, it's, that was 2010. So here we yeah. are almost 12 years later, bros. And, and, you know, Eric and I didn't know each other prior to this podcast interview for our listeners out there, but Ryan Wolf says, Hey Jay, you gotta, you gotta meet my boy, Eric and, and get him on the podcast. And, and he hits up Eric and says, Hey man, you got to get on my boys. But that's all it takes is, is yeah. one guy giving you that validation. Um, when you're in the special operations community, that's all it takes because we're brothers and, and you've, you've joined that circle and, and you know that you can count on each other. Um, yeah, 100%, man. I, I, I went to Navy Halo too, man. So yeah, it's just, uh, you go to classic PowerPoint ever. and then they throw you out on a plane and be like, you better learn how to fly. So I think Navy Halo's got an edge on, on Army Halo because you pretty much, that's how you learn. You're like, see ya. Um, but yeah, man, I mean, and that's the other thing for your listeners, man. You, you got to have a good reputation. Got to be a good dude, man, because if you're not, you know, in, the, in these two career fields, the pararescue and combat control, if you're, if you're a dirt ball or you're just a dude that you're not, you're not a good guy, your, your reputation will precede you even after the team. So be a good guy, be humble, work your ass off, take care of each other. Yeah. 100%. So Eric, if you wouldn't mind sharing, uh, I know you're a humble guy, so, you know, you keep it as brief as you want, but if you wouldn't mind sharing maybe a story or two on when you got to use your skills as a combat controller operationally, um, whether it be during a deployment or, or maybe during training or just anything like that that comes to mind. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you. Uh, so, you know, you, the combat control, the, cl the close air support piece, the JTAC, uh, some of you guys probably just heard that. JTAC is just a qualification. They think that JTAC is actually a, a, you know, a slot on a, on a team. But, I mean, that's just a qual, just like Halo and Dive. But anyway, so first deployment out of England, Chris Rush, the guy that I was talking about, my first supervisor, we're sitting in a helicopter and, you know, you remember the helicopters is a constant buzz, right? Because you got your headphones on and you hear that, you know, and, and I, I remember I had sunglasses on, he had sunglasses on and I'm staring at him and in my head, I'm just worried. I'm just like, okay, dude, you know, and you're just checking. You're like, okay, I got my gun. I have, I have my rifle. I have all, you know, my magazines, my cryptos and my radios. I mean, you're going through all this stuff in your head because you're landing on your first fire base and, you know, combat controllers, when we deploy, we deploy by ourselves. So, we, we deploy as a unit per se, but once you get farmed out to a team, either an army team or a Navy team, or even a coalition, you're by yourself. You're the only air force dude assigned to that team. So, uh, you know, first deployment's kind of nerve wracking. I'm on a helo. We touch down. Chris gets up, helps me unload my bags. And uh, I'll give you his, some of the best advice ever. He leans in, you know, and the rotors are still spinning. So we're kind of yelling at each other. And he said, uh, he's like, all right, man, don't suck and don't die. I'll see you in six months. I can't give him this look like this is the best advice you got for it's, me. It's very then, simple uh, advice, right? Yeah, it's great advice. Where man. was this? Uh, where was this at, brother? If you can say, uh, yeah, it was. It was the southern. We were the southernmost team at that time. Uh, I forgot. It, it was near Code Coda, 
Code Village, man. I got to look at my maps, but it was very southernmost team. And because uh, we were closing down everything at the time, you know, so we were we were there to disrupt the Taliban and then we we're going to leave. And then the last thing and then he kind of looks at me, leans back in again. So I was like, OK, so here comes the good advice. You know, he's going to give me. And he said, if things get really bad for you, he's like, crawl into a ball start crying and someone with a gun will he said a man with a gun will come save you and <laughs> we high five and he gets on a helicopter and takes off i was like holy shit he turns around it's a good team lead right there yeah man he was a great dude man he turns around i turn around and there's my oda but you know and and in the, it's go time after that you know you kind of gotta own it and, and and figure it out as you go so my um so we go out into the uzbin and which was a really bad valley in Afghanistan. And this month, uh, I've been out a couple of times on, on uh, patrols and stuff, but nothing, nothing bad where we took any contact or anything. So we're inside an up armored and, and we're, we're cruising into this village in the Uzbin. And I remember I'm sitting there and all of a sudden you hear this, like these bangs hitting these up armored vehicles, right? So we're taking fire. And right above me on my left, I had, it's a little like dial box that has, you, you program it to where you have your internal radio, which is the team. And then you have, for me, was the second click was to air frequencies in case planes checked on. And the third was SATCOM antenna. So you have all these antennas outside of your vehicle. And, uh, you know, I start hearing these, this ping and it's, it's super loud when it, you're inside these vehicles, even when you have headphones on. And uh, we were with our, our SODAF commander, Roby, that I still talk to. And uh, he's like, call the tick, dude, call the tick. You know? <laughs> he, he's been in firefights before. And he's just like, get on the, you know, get on the, uh, get on the horn, man, call in troops and contacts. So that's what tick stands for. So that's what so those ping, like, that's what those pings were, huh? You, yeah, you yeah. He like blasted. right off the bat, man, as soon as he heard the first one, he just looked at me like, get on the mic, dude, call a tick. We're, you know, we're in tick. So without thinking, I mean, just everything's just kind of, you know, when people say training just takes over, it does. And so I switch over to the SATCOM freak. And, you know, I think my call sign was night owl, night owl something. And I was, you know, it's like, Hey, you know, not, you know, this night owl troops in contact, we need immediate air support, you know, located it. And it, and you're looking at your Fortrex and kind of your maps and you're giving them the, the kill box and, and your location, the friendlies. And, and I won't use the call sign to that dispatch center because I don't know if it's still classified or anything, but we'll just call it the dispatch center. And the guys that work that it's, it's coalition. So you American, a British guy, Australian, wherever. So this guy was not American and he's like, you know, in his accent, he's, I, I won't do it because I suck, but he, he said, uh, Hey, night owl, I'm sending you two by F 15 Eagles at supersonic speeds to your, to your location. So I'm like, hell yeah. So I, you know, I said, copy that. And as soon as I switched back those two clicks back to my team radio or to my air radio, uh, I could hear the pipes. He's like, <sighs> you know, these dudes were flying in supersonic to get to us, man. I I'm telling you, when you hear aircraft check out overhead, when, when you're in a firefight, it's the greatest sound ever, man, to know that there's Americans up there or, or friendlies looking at you and they're ready to lay waste for, for you, you know? And, and those guys just like, hey, this Seagull 21. I think it was 2122. I, I might be wrong on the number designator, but he's like, hey, you know, Night Owl, this Seagull 2122, we're here to help, man. What do you got going on, man? He's like, I, I hear you're in a little bit of trouble. And, and I'm like, yeah, man, we're taking fire from this, this tree line. And then just to hear these guys going to work, you know, and man, it was it was awesome, dude. It was it was the greatest like feeling of knowing that I knew exactly what I was supposed to do, exactly how I was going to employ. But uh so you're giving these guys a full-on nine line, Eric. Yeah, I mean, man. You're, you're you're you haven't been in country for long. You're in a tick, and, and it's time to rock and roll and drop some ordnance. Oh, dude! And it's man. When I was training to be to do this, man, I remember the first time an aircraft checked in and training. There's so much stuff they give you. You know, they give you their call signs, the type of aircraft, how much play time they have. They call it how much loitering time. Their uh, their weapon systems, what kind of sensors they have. It's just it's like. 10 different things that they're telling you, man. And you're writing all this stuff down. And I remember after they checked in the first time I ever heard of aircraft check in, checked in, I was like, there's no way I'm ever going to do this. This is too much shit. And then, you know, and then, and then you're going to add being in a firefighter under stress, but man, all that training, man, uh, I'm telling you, once that Eagle two, one and two, two checked on, I, I was ready to go. It was just like nothing. It's like you and I talking, it was just a secondhand thing. And, and uh, yeah, I was ready to rock. And uh, unfortunately, 
my first firefight letter, my, my commander said, Hey, we're breaking contact. And I was so mad, dude, because I was like, please just let me drop these bombs on the, on this tree line. And he was like, Nope, you know, he, he didn't want to lose guys. And I, I think he had been in good fights and, and, uh, he just, you know, the risk wasn't there. So you got to listen to the ground forces commander. They're the guys in charge and we were all contact, but that was, that was my first time. And then afterwards, uh, the second firefight, um, that came down later that, that, in that deployment was kind of the same way, but this time we were on foot and, um, same thing, man, I was talking to my buddy, Tim, he was, he was our Fox and, uh, we're walking, we were talking about Spartacus or something. I, I don't know if you know that show, but it's a pretty good show. And we were just walking, we were going to check out this new, this, uh, shoot at us. Actually, that was my second deployment. And, uh, we went down, man, and you start hearing bullets just, just hidden like these compounds that were behind us. It's just, you know, that sound, that crazy, like, it's that slap, you know, and you're just like, holy shit, they're shooting at us, you know? So we ran down to cover. And same thing, man, it got on a SATCOM antenna, called in for air support. And that day I had surfaced to about 37,000 feet. So, you know, I had Apaches, I had a Predator, I had a Reaper, I had uh, uh, manned ISR platform. I had F-16s and I had F-18s and finally I had a B-1 bomber overhead and they're all looking to work, man. It was, it was great, dude. Um, we ended up killing a guy with, with the helicopters. The Apache ended up smoking them. And uh, yeah, but for about four hours, we were just, you know, trading, trading rounds. So uh, my firefights weren't as bad as some of the other guys, obviously very close. Mine were a little bit spread up, uh, spread out, but uh, man, it's it, it great. And it's just, uh, yeah, man, being in a firefight, I mean, I loved it. It, it was it was such an adrenaline rush, you know, and, and then you miss it. But uh it's fun and games, man, till till you start losing guys and then and then it just kinda you know, it just kind of hollows you out a little bit. So but yeah, that's that's kind of my short uh I mean that got stories, but those are the two memorable ones of uh that I like telling just because it was it was just I could guess my first two firefights, you know. So it was it was just fun, man. I like that um, you mentioned it was second nature for you to communicate with this aircraft. The Air Force put in a lot of work to prepare you for this deployment and, and to train you. And you know that you are trained whenever you just start doing something without even thinking about it. Yeah, 100%. So you ended up uh, doing this. This is, this is your second deployment to Afghanistan that you're, you were talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the one with uh, Tim and yeah, when we killed that guy, it was my second one. It, and so you, you, you get back to England and then you end up going to the 23rd special tactic squadron right down here at Herbert field air force base. How'd you like your time on the beautiful Gulf coast, man, working with all the AC one thirty spectrum yeah. ships. <laughs> yeah, man, I, I had, a, I had a great time with great dudes, you know, two, three, obviously it's a lot bigger, you know, and that's what I was talking about earlier. I mean, the two, three was great, but everybody at the end of the day, everybody goes home and does their own things, you know, the beat, but I mean, you can't, you can't knock not living there, man. That's such a beautiful place there. So uh, yeah. And you got great resources, right? You got, you got the Eagles and you got gunships and plenty of aircraft. So man, the weather, yeah, the weather and, and the assets that we have down there were great. Where did you end your career at Eric? Was it right there at the 23rd? Yeah. The two, the two, three. So that deployment I was telling you about when, um, when I had surfaced about 34, 37,000 feet, um, when I had come back from that deployment, so I was, that was with a team from first group there when we got in that firefight and then a controller and the ODA captain that was working up in Wardak, they got, they hit an IED and they got kind of banged up. So they, they moved them out. So I went up to Wardak, which is North Afghanistan and uh, ended up working with, with my buddy, Andrew. He was the team leader for that team. It was his first command. And I did my last, you know, it was winter by that time. So, I mean, tons of snow, very, very little contact there. So I left and two weeks later, man, there was a big green on blue this, um, up in Jalarez in Wardak. And um, he ended up, he ended up getting killed, dude. He, he got killed and, and the squad leader, the dog, almost my ODA got shot up pretty bad. It was a pretty bad green on blue. And, and that took it out of me, man. I, um, I was in San Antonio um, for my time off. And my commander called me and, and he said, Hey man, Andrew, your t Andrew, um, was hit. And, um, you know, um, that was it. And I, I packed up my stuff 
I drove back to Florida, went to my commander's office, and I was like, hey, man, I, I want to go back. I, you know, uh, all my stuff's packed. I just need my weapon, radio, and, and night vision, and um, I'll, I'll just go be a shooter. I don't, uh, we had a controller there. I was like, you know, he can continue to control aircraft. I just want to help the team, and I just want to be a shooter. So uh, he probably saved my career and my, my, uh, my liberty. He said, no. I'm not sending you, dude. My shoulder was pretty torn up from wear and tear. And so I said, okay, uh, I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to have surgery and then I'm going to get out. And that was it, man. I just, it just took it out of me, dude. I, I thought Hillary was going to win too. And, and our rules of engagement on the Obama administration were bad. So I said, I'm out and yeah, ended my career at 15 years in September of 2013. That was the last time. Man. 15 years. So, after after serving the United States and being in an elite community in special operations like combat control, can you give us kind of the, the recap on what what do you feel you got out of that experience? Uh, what were the positives, the negatives? Was it worth it? Um, and, and how did it attribute to where you're at now? Yeah, I, I think the positives, you know, as we spoke uh, about this earlier in, in your show was that... Uh, it just makes you a different type of man, you know, it just, you, it just, it gives you that no quit attitude and anything you, you set your mind to, even you have some setbacks, if you, you got to keep chipping away at it, keep moving forward. And, you know, it's the speed of life and civilian life to when we're on the teams, even when we, you know, hurry up and wait, as, as they say in the military, you think you're moving at such a slow speed, but compared to civilian life, it's, it's light years, you know, and then it, it just, it just makes you into a tougher human, you know, and, and it just really hones the, the ability for you not to, to pursue what you want. You know, it, everybody kind of, I think when they leave the teams, you lose that purpose, obviously, and you don't realize it at the time, but eventually you find it. Um, and that was great. And, and the, the, the guys that I've met throughout the career field and, and, you know, the, the meetings that I, you know, of other individuals like yourself that because of my buddy that I trust that vouched for you and he vouched for me. And, and now we're talking and it's like, I've, I've met you for a long time. You know, it's just, it seemed less like, okay, if, if my buddy trusts you, then, then you're a good dude, you know? And it, it's such a, it was the greatest time of my life for sure. Um, the bad things I would say was, at the end, when, you know, when you're doing this job, you're very young and you don't really take care of your body because you just want to keep operating. You don't want to take that time off because you, you don't want to miss deployment. You want to keep, you know, you feel like when you're hurt, like you're, it feels like you're giving up on your team or, or maybe you, your teammates, it, you might feel that your teammates are like, ah, oh, this guy just wants to get out of training, but it doesn't, man. You know, so you, all the Motrin that you eat, you know, just so that way you can stay in the fight and it hurts you in the long run because I'm 43 now. And, uh, you know, once I left the teams after a year, you're, the back injuries, you know, the, 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 the knees and the shoulders, and you know, it, it, it catches up with you eventually. Uh, but the bad part was, I would say, when I first got out and my transition was really rough, man. And there was times that I, that I wish I didn't do it because, you know, while we were in the military and, and in my young 20s, I was, I was out deploying and, and doing that thing, you know, and, and the people that didn't deploy in their twenties, they were, they were climbing up that corporate ladder. So even though when I got out of a, out of combat control with a bachelor's degree, I had no true business experience. So I would go to these jobs and people were like, Hey, thank you for serving your country, but have you ever ran a multi-million dollar budget or have you ever, you know, done a presentation where it's not military, it's all business. And you obviously like, no, just in school. So I, that's when I, that's when I kind of regretted it. But looking back now that I'm past that, man, no one, especially combat control, pararescue, there's, there's no one out there like us. And we're so small that once you find your niche, like I'm doing now, it's, you thrive. I mean, there's no one that can touch you, man. Not no one. I mean, you're just such a skilled individual and your, your heart and your mind, it's so dialed in that once you truly find what you're passionate about, nothing can stop you, man. So that ne- you just got to feed off that negative stuff and, and don't let it get you down. And, and you just go out and, and, and conquer, you know? So um, that was the only part where I would say the bad was at the very beginning of my transition was like, man, I should have 
I shouldn't have gone into the military. I should have just stayed in college. But looking back now, as a 43-year-old, I was like, yeah, screw that. I'm glad I did it. <laughs> well said, Eric. Having some type of injury due to your service, it's, it's probably going to happen if you do it long enough. Um, yeah. and, and unfortunately, you're probably going to lose some people you love. That's part of it as well. God forbid that ever happens. You take those two factors out and you're looking at, at, at a life of almost a pilgrimage of excellence. And uh, when, yeah. you, when you finish it and, and you're, you're done with it, nothing can stop you if you stick to your core values. You know, in the Air Force, we have core values, service before self, or excuse me, integrity first, service before self, and excellence in all we do. And mm-hmm. those, those three lines right there, you can, you can dedicate your entire life to. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, kind of think about what Eric said, you know, the, the man he was before versus the man he was after. You know, I think about in my life, some of the two biggest things that I noticed before and after. One of those is the level of sacrifice you're willing to make to get the mission done. It's like before I went into pararescue in school. Okay. Let's use school as an example. If I had an exam and I wanted to get an A on that exam, <clears throat> let's say it was midnight. I was really tired. And I just could, could barely keep my eyes open. Well, I have three, four more hours of studying to do in order for me to get an A on that exam for sure. Well, it sucks that I'm not going to be able to get that studying in because I got to go to bed now. So guess I'm not going to get an A. That's pre-pararescue Jason. Post-pararescue Jason would be, well, I'm not going to get any sleep tonight because I said I'm going to get an A on that exam. I'm sacrificing that three, four hours of sleep, my personal yeah. desires and comforts to get the mission done. What do you think about that, Eric? Yeah, no, 100%. You, you do whatever it takes to get the mission done, like you said. Uh, whatever it takes, man. If, if For you, when you're studying, you're like, okay, I guess I'm going to drink two more monsters and be wired till... <laughs> Have yeah, a heart you're gonna be, Yeah, you're going to be wired till three o'clock in the afternoon until your body just finally shuts off and you crash out wherever, you know? And same thing here, man. You, you know, I got to keep knocking or doing whatever it takes for this campaign stuff. And I'm just like, all right, man, I'll, I'll do whatever. You know, if I got to walk for 12 hours and that's that's what it takes to win you know and um but yeah it it just makes you such a determined individual if you truly set your mind to it you know you you will accomplish it even if you know when we're on the teams even that could be death you're just like i will not let my teammates down i will do whatever i can physically do to get the mission or to save my teammates you know And, and and you said it um it just makes you such a driven individual and, you know, mortality later is a second thought. You're just like, I don't care. I'm going to die doing this, you know? And, and, and that's what makes you so unique and, and, and special is, is that is a lot of people after a while are like, ah, I'm just going to quit. I don't feel good or it's uncomfortable. And for us, it's like, I don't give a shit. Like I'm just going to keep pressing. And that's, that's what makes us very, very unique and talented people here on earth. Yeah. Well said, you know, everybody wants to be big, but nobody wants to lift that weight. Everybody wants to be a seal or a combat controller, but nobody wants to get in the pool. Um, Everybody wants to live by the sword, but they don't always want to die by the sword, not willing to die by the sword. And that's really what it takes with that level of dedication. So Eric, any last minute advice, kind of parting words for our listeners out there? Man, I, I would say if, if you really set your mind to whatever you're doing, if you're, if you're going to go pararescue, combat control, or any of the other soft uh, career fields out there in the Army and Navy, you just got to strive for it, man. Don't let nothing deter you, whether it's an injury. If you get hurt, you can always come back. Don't ever say you quit because quit, quitting becomes a habit. And well, as we established earlier, you got to have a routine, stick to your routine. But whatever you want to accomplish uh, in life, stick to it. Even if you move forward an inch every morning, then that's fine, man. You just got, you cannot quit. And, uh, you know, you just got to be a hard individual <laughs> to do it, man. So yeah, I, I think, uh, don't let anything deter you, not love, not, you know, I, I, a lot of guys, when I was going through the pipeline, you know, they're young. So it's the first time they've been out of the house and they, they meet the, they think the love of their life and they, they end up quitting or, whatever, they get married. And then, you know, you see those guys down the line six months later, a year later, and I'm like, Hey, what happened? They're like, Oh, I got divorced or we broke up and now they can't come back to the career field. So, you know, uh, for, for guys, right. Our career fields are, are for guys, but, uh, sometimes chasing women, you know, destroy kingdoms and starts war. Look at Helen of Troy, you know, look at history. 
So stick to your guns, get where you need to be, and, and then uh, you'll be all right. Well said. Don't get distracted. Stay focused. Yep. So, Eric, in closing here, man, how do we find out more about your campaign? How do we support you for those that are looking to do so? Tell us more, man. Yeah. So uh, if you, you know, like I said, exposure and, and contributions is this whole campaign thing. So it's ericholman.com. So it's E-R-I-C-H-O-H-M-A-N.com. Uh, yeah. Take a look. Take a look at that awesome campaign video. It's from uh, my helmet camps. It's got some good uh, combat footage on there. But uh, no, thank you very much, dude. Uh, this, this is great. It was my pleasure. And hopefully, you know, it, it helps a guy get, get through it and, and become another either pararescue man, combat controller or, you know, whatever other branch they're searching. But yeah, thank you so much. My pleasure, Eric. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. For our listeners out there, this podcast is titled Send Me After the Bible Verse Isaiah 6, 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. You're looking at another gentleman who has been sent and is going out to serve a greater purpose. Support him. Eric, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, brother. Have a great rest of your day. Likewise, man. Thank you so much. If you're still listening to this episode, don't turn down your volume. Keep listening. We're asking for your support. Running this podcast at the quality and level that we do requires an ample amount of time, resources, and funding. We would be grateful if you would consider supporting us via the SOCOM Athlete Patreon Fund through a small monthly donation, whether it be just a dollar or two dollars or three dollars. Any amount that you feel comfortable supporting us with is greatly appreciated. Our Patreon fund can be located here on the episode caption by clicking on the link or by going to www.patreon.com slash SOCOMathlete or simply typing in SOCOMathlete Patreon in a Google search. Additionally, if you have an iPhone, please consider giving us a simple five-star review or a written review. These help tremendously in the Apple algorithm of giving our podcast increased visibility and getting our message out to a larger audience. Thank you again for listening to the SOCOM Athlete Podcast. Send me. This is your host, Jason. We are out. Thank you. Up. Up. Down.